and Holly Headley. St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Ordinary Life. I was uh, having a conversation with one of my clients today about um, the fact that probably since the middle of March until today, I would say that there have been very few sessions that I have had with people where the topic of the coronavirus in some way did not get brought up and or our political situation mm -hmm. in this country and yeah. sometimes both of them uh, it's what people have wanted to talk about people have been affected by the virus <clears throat> yeah i think this you know to try and distance ourselves from kind of the outer world or the social world um, to think that it has nothing to do with us or doesn't impact us directly is is wrong <laughs> there's wrong. definitely a lot of um effort to spiritually bypass well, anyways, just to sort of think about the spiritual bypass, so many people think, well, that doesn't really affect me. And that's what allows us to kind of either not get invested in the healing or to bypass the impact of the politics on our psyche. I go back to thinking about that little clip from Van Jones on CNN in which he just spontaneously and uncontrollably wept. And that release of like, this tension has been held in my body. And I can now say to my son that decency matters. I can now say to my son that maybe when you mm -hmm. wake up, you won't have to be afraid. Mm -hmm. And I think for some that sort of social anxiety is felt differently than others. My longing would be if we could all tap into it just a little tiny bit, then we could invest ourselves in healing you know, I had a, an unexpectedly unexpected open hour today, and I chose to use that time to write our Christmas mm. letter. It's just not something that I have been used to doing. I never wrote a Christmas letter until about three years ago. And so I just sat down, looked at the calendar for this year and kind of what, what's been going on and wrote a two-page Christmas letter. And one of the things that I wrote in the letter, and I think this has to do with the age I am, uh, is that I noted that at least a half a dozen of my really close friends had died yeah. this year. And um, one of the things that really was impactful about their deaths was that there was no way to celebrate yeah. because of COVID. We couldn't get together. We couldn't gather. And it, it, sadly, but truthfully, funerals are a time when extended family get together and really have a yeah. pretty good time. Yeah, especially <laughs> when that is a celebration of a long life. 
of a long life right. and a good life. Right. Yeah, we, we um, uh, had a woman in in our our both close friend and in our faith community who died this year, Thelma <laughs> Rowe. And it was a great celebration of her life after that, and a lot of joy and happiness mm -hmm. and things because she had had a long and happy life. But and and the other people who died too uh, had long and happy lives. But in uh, two cases, family members could not be with them in yeah. the hospital as they yeah. died, and so it's been hard in that sense. And thinking of those deaths just caused me to think how many many people in this country have died of COVID. How preventable many of those deaths could have been and weren't. Yeah, yep. I think I was, you know, I saw a headline that said something like, you know, it, it's something that we've all been learning over the last couple of months that those who have been the most vulnerable are, are often our black and brown communities, the Native American community, um, those who live intergenerationally in small spaces where maybe their work is necessary or their hourly wage, you know, their life depends on their hourly wage. It's just really unfortunate that sort of um, necessity dictated life or death outcomes, you know, versus choice of how do I want to either protect or not protect myself. It's, it seemed like necessity was driving it rather than making an informed conscious choice about, well, I can either choose to work or take unemployment that so many I think have been driven by um, panic, anxiety around whether or not their, their families were gonna be okay if someone stopped working or, and so therefore could not reduce the risks that that were, they were facing. And that is, um, and, th and then back to your point about friends that have died this year. It's, it's not to say that, I mean, all of us ultimately die alone the moment of our death. We are alone in that transition, even if 8,000 people are surrounding us. Um, but we very rarely die at the exact same moment as someone else wrapped up with them. I mean, that just probably very rarely happens. And that, but that kind of inability, as you say, to grieve, to have closure, to celebrate, that so many have mm -hmm. um, had to suffer alone in emergency rooms. Um, just someone very close to me um, recently had COVID and she's okay in that department, but she said the way that it was handled at the hospital was like someone kind of opened the door crack with a full bodysuit on and was like, you have COVID, <laughs> you know? Um, so this feeling also of even in being okay that she was all alone um, was tremendous. Mm -hmm. And, um, that is maybe the most depressing aspect of this type of sickness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I um, am now that we've been talking about it and thinking that we're going to step away for a week from the morality teachings in the Sermon on the Mount uh, and thinking about Advent and Christmas, I'm, 
I can get generate a lot of energy about that because I think if there's one thing that we need right now, it's yeah. a story of hope. And uh, so I'm, I'm mm -hmm. looking forward to that. A lot of Advent mm -hmm. stuff. Well, I was thinking about, you know, this, the, the symbol of light um, as we sort of first started talking and while I think, and I hope that this will be something that we get to marinate on on Sunday. Um, I looked it up today. What was uh, the quote unquote first word spoken uh, in, in the biblical text? And it was light. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, and what was the first sort of thing that evolutionary cosmologists and, and deep time physicists think happened in, in evolutionary time is a tremendous flash of light. You know, darkness mm. makes light possible. They're partners, not necessarily opposites, complementary opposites, maybe we could say. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was just thinking, like, how magnificent is that? That maybe our religious traditions and our celebratory traditions have actually tried to find a way to talk about evolutionary time in regards to light using metaphor and using symbolic language. It's got me thinking, like, what are, what is the light that we've experienced this year in the midst of darkness? You're asking me that? sort of rhetorical but okay. if you want to answer it <laughs> well i think i think the light that i i have experienced is um i would talk about many things um i am without in any way meaning to sound partisan enormously relieved that our country seems to have stepped back from the brink of the destruction of our democracy, which we have come very close to this year. Um, if the election had been closer, uh, if there had been more rebellious stances in the um, uh, way the votes were cast at just yesterday, mm -hmm. um, I mean, we we have we have stepped onto some thin ice that we we are grateful not to have gone through this year. So that's a very good thing. Yeah. And also, I think the fact that there have been the the, the creativity of people who have come up in such a record period of time with a virus to deal with this pandemic is just absolutely astonishing. I read, I think it was just today, that the last virus vaccine that was um, invented to deal with mumps mm -hmm. was the most, one of the most recent ones, took four years mm. to develop. And here's yeah. something that was killing a lot more people than mumps and they were able to roll it out in less than a year. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, um, it is. And uh, I mean, it certainly says a lot about where we are with technological and scientific advances with what we know about immunology. What I would love to see and not to be a sort of rainy cloud um, 
is that same innovation and imagination applied to prevention? And how what, might we actually look at this as a deeper learning? What do we need to do for our environment, uh, for our ecology, for um, the very crowded and uh, uh, air polluted ways that people live in order to prevent something like this from happening again? Because if we don't change that, we're gonna necessitate this kind of invention over and over and over again. And that makes me fear that my children's lifetime will be defined by one pandemic after another. Well, and, what motivated yeah. the desire for a cure was economic. Mm -hmm. And we don't mm -hmm. feel that same economic necessity behind environmental issues, which is sad because mm -hmm. The, the writing is clearly on the wall. I mean, the evidence is in that if we don't do something, we're, we're damaging ourselves. And yet look at what's happening to the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. They're cutting back lumber all the time for purely economic gain, not mm -hmm. realizing that they're destroying the lungs of the world. Right, right. I was thinking about, I, so I, I think I told you that I wrote for my comprehensive exam, um, a letter to my son. Um, answering his question, what is the human element? And one of the things that I was sort of recalling was um, the notion of breath. And you say, you know, the Amazon is the, the lungs of the world. It, it, it photosynthesizes and oxygen, uh, oxygenates <laughs> um, so much by being such a densely populated growth area. And our life is defined by the first breath we take and the last breath we take. And the quality of that breath is defined by um, how well we interact with our environment, how well we take care of ourselves, how, how well we uh, love others and how well we are loved. And I, and I just think of that symbolically, like our, our lungs of this earth aren't able to get a deep breath. And so that means that we're all to some degree kind of shallow breathing, you know, uh, not really able to mindfully breathe on a wide scale because of that devastation. I think too that um, one of the things that we have experienced during this pandemic is um, a lot of people coming forward to do their very best mm -hmm. to not just invent the, the vaccine for the virus, but small acts of kindness that have been done. Uh, I just found out today, I think I heard something about it a couple of days ago, but I just found out today that the Ordinary Life Women's Group mm -hmm. has arranged to give away 600 chickens to people in need this year. Yes, and our Ordinary Life collection is actually paying for that. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. We agreed on it yesterday that our the group collection that we have amassed this year is going to pay for those chickens to be delivered to, I think, 150 families or more. Um, That's wonderful. That's just yeah. absolutely wonderful. Yeah. yeah, you know, for sure. I mean, there's there's always this kind of um, 
gosh, I'll have to show you something while we're sitting here. I just looked at it. Um, there's always this kind of cyclical effect. The, the best and worst of people come out in trying times, Yeah, you know, and, and that in and of itself is a comparison of light and dark. How does light make dark more evident and dark make light more evident? Um, I feel like in this podcast, even you're kind of being optimistic and I'm being a little bit like, yeah, but <laughs> so maybe that's an appropriate, um, didn't even plan that, but we're in dialectic uh, difference here. Um, and I am, after all, a loyal skeptic, faithfully counterphobic six on the Enneagram. <laughs> so um, it's, it, but it is interesting, like what this has called upon for me personally is what is my investment in hope? Um, and I do think that on the whole, I'm invested in hope. Um, and on the whole, I'm invested in trying to love my kids the best way I can, trying to offer as much good as I can to this world. By no means have I given up. I've looked at each of these incidents that have happened this year, especially where uh, racial injustice is revealed and have said, well, what's, what's my role here to invest in hope? Mm -hmm. and, um, and yet I'm still very wary of dramatic systems change. I don't totally trust it. And that is an in interesting tension to live with. I'm an incredibly hopeful, um, positive person for the most part. And I am very skeptical of our hmm. commitment to capitalism, our commitment to uh, personal happiness rather than collective well being. Uh, those things don't match the amount of hope I feel. So um, I've shared with you that one of the things that we're doing during this time is re-watching a series that um, it's on Amazon about um, a detective named Monk. Mm -hmm. One of Monk's gifts is that he has the ability to see things that other people can't see. I don't mean like supernatural seeing, but he has the ability to look around a crime scene and see evidence that other people just can't see. Mm -hmm. And he has this memory of things and numbers and all that. And occasionally somebody will comment to him about it and he will say, it's a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. So I have uh, the ability to remember things from my background from when I was two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a blessing. It's a curse. Yes. I remember the Sunday afternoon that we got the news of Pearl Harbor. Mm. And mm. I remember living in the aftermath of that time mm. um, in a small, two small communities in Tennessee. Yeah. And um, my experience is that we as a country came together in a common good endeavor. Perhaps there's no time as ever before that is certainly, I don't, I don't know, not in my lifetime. And that seems to be gone. Mm. You know, okay, I'm going to be a shadow again. <laughs> um, that 
I was not alive during that time. So I will say that my, my ability to critique it is limited by that fact. However, there are many writers, columnists, um, David Brooks is one of them who kind of looks at the halcyon days of America. Why can't we just come together the way we did around World War II when everyone seemed to sort of be invested in a, in a collective outcome? And Josh, my husband who is black, says, hang on a minute, who was left out of that time? Mm-hmm. Black men and women, white women were called upon to fulfill some in- industry jobs and even played baseball, mm-hmm. but then were put back into the background when men were returning from war. But most precisely, I just think, you know, for, and I don't know, you were alive, I was not. For white America, that may have felt like a coming together. Whereas black soldiers went to fight and a, a, a fascist regime for this country came back and it would have be almost two decades until they were served by the law mm-hmm. in a way that even partially recognized their inclusion. Mm-hmm. So I hold that also <laughs> with some with some shadow. Yeah, I, I, I think both of those things are true. Mm-hmm. You know, when people say they want to go back to the good old days, I say, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a coming together. There was something about that time that was true for white people in this country that disregarded other people. That's true. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I'm in no way trying to make light of that and saying that we did not live with the the divisiveness that Mm. seems to be part of our culture today at that time. So there was a collective commitment toward what we sort of perceived as, let's say, a common enemy in World War II. Right. And and where, where we have moved as a culture seems to me to have moved into a space of individual entitlement rather Mm -hmm. than common good on Mm -hmm. parts of both left and right. You know, I can say that. For sure. Yeah. True for both. So um, when I say that we came back from thin ice and, and where we are politically as a country, I don't mean to imply that the dangerous stuff was all coming from the right. It's not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, we need to acknowledge that that as well. I don't know what has to happen for us to have it dawn on us, to use another metaphor for the light, <laughs> that mm-hmm. uh, if we don't wake up as a country, as a, as a collective, we're, we are really harming ourselves. Absolutely. I think our best quick answer to that is to listen to the voices of those who have been excluded, you know, to say, okay, and again, not in an effort to sound um, partisan, but I will say that one of the things, and I'm not, um, enthusiastically thrilled about uh, Joe Biden, let's say, in the way that I actually was like really thrilled <laughs> about Obama, right? Um, I'm like, okay, Joe Biden, that's it. That's good. It's like, it's normalcy, right? 
But Joe Biden is a person who has suffered deeply. He's lost two children, a, a wife, um, mm-hmm. to, to tragic circumstances. And so mm-hmm. what I think he has that we might need is an understanding of how suffering or intense darkness can also lead to the light of wisdom or experience. And he's in touch with that. I'm, I'm guessing that Trump has suffered also, else we would not be seeing some of these just really regressive, but I didn't win kind of behaviors. Um, I just don't see him as a person who has transformed his suffering. Um, Since uh, we're on this topic, I will just share with you an experience I had. Um, I have now seen three interviews with Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Two were conducted by Stephen Colbert, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really great. Um, And one was conducted by Oprah. And I don't remember in which one of the interviews Obama said this, but it's something that just gave me kind of a chill Mm -hmm. to hear him say it. You know, I've heard Obama say before that he was grateful that he went eight years without a major scandal in his presidency. But he said to Colbert or to Oprah, he said, I will tell you something that's true about my presidency. There were days that passed when you never thought about me. And I would say, yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. But for the last four years, that's not been Mm -hmm. true. Our president has commanded, demanded attention. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not been healthy for anybody. I agree, because what we've also done is enabled it by giving it our attention and our, um, I I can liken it to sort of um, being, being around, raised by, in relationship with someone who has addictive behaviors or borderline behaviors, where you're kind of always watching, where is the shoe going to drop today? Is this person going to be sober or not sober? Is this person in a good mood or not in a good mood? You know, this kind of our behavior in many ways was dictated by what tensions were coming down the pipeline at any given time. I have a friend who's a therapist in North Carolina, and she said, pretty sure we're going to have to come up with a new diagnosis called PTD. PTTD, <laughs> post-traumatic Trump uh, disorder. Um, and she's actually like, the, the reality is that she in her practice has seen many, many, many women whose sexual trauma has been brought to the surface because of having to be in the social domain under the leadership of someone who has more than 20 accusations against him of sexual assault or rape. Wow. So what can we do? I think those of us who would have a conversation like you and I are having right now need to be very, very sensitive to the pain and anguish, the hurt, the loss, uh, whatever it is that would cause people to be so supportive of something that nearly killed our democracy. Mm -hmm. 
and especially those who um, have been wearing the label of evangelical Christians. Somebody sent me a text the other day is saying that is it is it possible to be a Christian and to have supported Trump's agenda? And he says, um, well, yeah, if you get rid of Jesus and everything he taught and stood for. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think since you and I are teaching in the context of a, of a Christian church uh, and in the, in the tradition, although I'm, I'm very open to all sorts of traditions and religious expressions, I think we really need to be able to say what is and what is not in line with, with what is the teaching of Jesus. Yeah. And, um, you know, Jesus was a troublemaker from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, kind of like a representative John Lewis would say, "Good trouble." It I'm, was good trouble. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not hesitant to cause yeah. that kind of trouble. Yeah, yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's true because there, there are people wondering um, what has happened to the world that they were comfortable in, and why is everything so disruptive and up in the surface, and why do I have to deal with economic insecurity and racial? injustice and uh, healthcare insecurity. I think that things are disrupted and, and, and disruption is a kind of darkness, but I want to say disruption is where darkness and light mingle, where they kind of, you know, just enough stuff is getting revealed. Um, and there are, there are periods of disruption that are necessary in order for us to see what needs to change. I don't, you know, I don't not have sympathy for folks who feel like their world isn't recognizable. It's just that I want to also say, and maybe this is not as tender as I need to be. I um, listened to an interview once with ta Coates about sort of the requirements that were made of him as a young black journalist working with all white guys um, and all men um, who would sit around and joke during office hours about Think cultural things that they sort of grew up with. They had a cultural collective conversation that they could all participate in. Tanahasi Coates did not grow up with that cultural conversation because he grew up in Baltimore in a black community raised by a single mom. And um, the expectation in the room was not that they would stop and say, now Coates, let me explain to you what we mean when we're talking about this movie reference or that song reference or this cultural reference. They just expected him to catch up. Mm -hmm. in order to participate. Mm -hmm. And there is something of that that's required of us right now too. Mm -hmm. we, it is, there is discomfort, but there, there's also a call to kind of like catch up so that we can sort of participate in this cultural moment in a way that is most broadening, not mm -hmm. constrictive. Mm -hmm. um, and that's tough. <laughs> so changing the subject dramatically, mm -hmm. Is Christmas a big time in your family? Yeah, but it's mostly about toys. <laughs> it's, they're talking about Santa Claus way more than they're talking about Jesus. I mean, oh, sure. it's, yeah, oh, sure. I don't even actually believe that this is very much of a religious holiday anymore. I'd rather celebrate the light of Jesus's birth in a different way than I would this sort of um, present giving around Christmas. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
I, I have my Harry Potter advent calendar out there. Oh, okay. Still, <laughs> it survived your children? I mean, yeah. It's actually like really sturdy. It has these little cardboard doors that are really thick. So um, when you put everything back in order, you can use it again year after year. Oh, that's great. That's great. I'm glad. <laughs> I remember giving it to you. I love it. That's great. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I have a lot of memories, pleasant memories around Christmas as a kid growing up. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a time where it was unusual that we did not have snow for Christmas. Hmm. Hmm. We got snow holidays from school that were really great. Um, so yeah, I did hear somebody say the other day that if he heard anybody singing, oh, it's good to be home for the holidays. He was going to kill him. And now I can't get the song out of my mind. Yeah, you came in Sunday singing that, actually. I don't think we were recording just yet, but just before we started, you were you sang a little jingle from that song. Yeah. There's well, um, yeah. The way that your husband and I are alike is that we love Christmas music and listen to a lot of it. <laughs> Yesterday, uh, this was actually really funny. We have a sound system in our house that um, has speakers in various places in our house. So uh, we can have music on in the kitchen. And if I go upstairs um, to our room to, let's say, make the bed or whatever, I can play it in our room as well. So I exercised yesterday and I wanted to take a hot shower and, um, you know, get ready for the day. And I wanted like 10 minutes of not listening to Christmas music. So in our room, I changed the music. You can also change it from your phone. So I changed it to a playlist that I wanted. The next five minutes was Josh downstairs fast forwarding. Why, where, would, where did my Christmas music go? Why is this song on? So I'm texting him, please stop. I just want 10 minutes to shower without Christmas music. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that, that's about what it is. So, you know, when do we get a reprieve? And I, it, is, it is catchy. I find myself singing it. Also, it's joyous for the most part. I just needed a small break. Do, do, does he have any Trans-Siberian orchestra mute Christmas music? I don't know. I'll have to check. You, you, you'll have to ask him if he does. Yeah. Hi, Jet. Uh, that's, <laughs> the that's the podcast will hear Jet. So, <laughs> um, well, I was going to say two things. Earlier when we were talking, I said, oh, gosh, what we're talking about makes me think I need to show you something. And I'll, I'll put this as the artwork for our um, podcast today. But this was a collage that I made very early in the sort of COVID pandemic. And wow. what, yeah, what you see are lungs. We had yes. some visual of what the virus right. looked like, those yeah. kind of red crowny. And, and it sort of, there's a spiral coming out. Did you know that the word spirare is also rooted in the word breath and our breath moves in spirals, right? right. So I was kind of thinking about what is this time show us in the whole spiral of time, right? And our breath moves in spirals. So just, and then actually this piece was in our art auction that we had earlier in the spring for Ordinary Life and Richard bought it. So Richard, if you're listening, it's your piece I'm talking about. Um, but it just made me think like, gosh, I made this almost eight months ago. I wonder what I would make today, you know, kind of thinking about 
That's a good question. I'd like yeah. to see what that looks like. Me too. I'd like to make something, period, maybe. besides uh, dinner. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure, but maybe you could have something Sunday. Might be a good spiritual practice for me for the next few days, just mm -hmm. to make my response collage. Other thing that I wanted to tell you about and our listeners is that I just, um, and I'll link to this interview in the, um, in the summary, if you don't listen to On Being with Krista Tippett regularly, it's really mostly a lovely program. And she also, the On Being produces also a program called Poetry Unbound, which is um, Padre Gotuma reading a poem, explicating it, then reading it again. So it's mm -hmm. really, they're like 15 minutes. Um, but one of the people she interviewed recently was Richard Blanco, who is a Cuban American uh, son of immigrants, engineer turned poet. Oh, wow. And he, the title of his book, and it makes me think about so much that we're talking about, is called How to Love a Country. And he explores this sort of tension of space where he, so many immigrants, especially those who come from trying to escape fascist regimes, economic crises, um, civil wars, have such idealism about America and what America can be. And he is sort of a second generation, or but he was very young when he came. He was like 42 days old when he emigrated to America. So he mostly identifies with growing up in America. But he's able to walk this line of feeling idealistic as well as realistic or critical of this country that has become his home. Mm -hmm. And I'll read just one paragraph of it. His poems are like stories. And this one, he uses a really neat form where he's, it's called the Declaration of Interdependence. And he has a line from the Declaration of Independence, then a sort of narrative, then another line from the Declaration, then a narrative. So he, he's playing with our system a bit. Is this true? Is this not true? Mm -hmm. And the last one ends with, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We're the cure for hatred caused by despair we're the good morning of a bus driver who remembers our name, the tattooed man who gives up his seat on the subway, where every door held open with a smile when we look into each other's eyes the way we behold the moon, where the moon, where the promise of one people, one breath declaring to one another, I see you, I need you, I am you. Wow, that's beautiful. So. Mm -hmm. You're going to do a piece of art for Sunday? I hope so. I'm anticipating um, doing something about the first story, the first Christmas, uh, maybe with apologies to Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. So I'm thinking about doing that. We'll have fun Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Thanks for this. You're welcome. Alrighty. See you soon.